Welcome to the Helping Couples Heal podcast, a place for healing and hope for couples impacted by betrayal resulting from infidelity and or sex addiction. Your hosts are Marnie Breaker and Dwayne Osterlin, licensed marriage and family therapists, certified sex addiction therapists, and founders of respective treatment centers in Long Beach and Los Angeles. Marnie and Dwayne co-created Helping Couples Heal, the most comprehensive in-person and online resource for couples recovering from betrayal. And this podcast series is the first component of the program. Thank you for listening. Marnie and Duane are committed to helping you recover from the devastating impact of betrayal trauma and are excited to support you wherever you may be in your healing. If you've lost hope, you've come to the right place. Now, take a slow, deep breath. And let's begin with the Helping Couples Heal podcast. All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Helping Couples Heal podcast. We are so glad you're joining us today as we have a very special guest. I am honored to introduce Dr. Omar Manwala, a licensed psychologist and clinical sexologist and the founder of the Institute of Sexual Health in Los Angeles. Omar was also the first person to hire me to work with partners when I first started out in this field back in 2008. He is the person who first introduced me to the partner trauma model, Over the years, we have worked closely with each other, collaborating on cases and co-facilitating couples workshops. In fact, the Helping Couples Heal workshop that has inspired this podcast series was born out of a trauma model workshop that Dr. Manuela and I co-facilitated together in 2010. And uh, we've been really looking forward to talking with you today about your sexual and relational health model of treatment and the compulsive abusive sexual relational disorders and sex addiction-induced trauma model. Dr. Manwala, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me. So the first thing we want to do is get to know you and have you introduce yourself to our listeners. So can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and your passion for working with partners and how this model essentially was born? Sure. So first of all, I'm a licensed psychologist by training, and I did my postdoc in clinical sexology at the University of Minnesota Medical School in their program in human sexuality. And so that's where I really specialized in sexual issues. One of those issues that I was trained in originally was compulsive sexual behavior. That model has a little bit of a different approach in terms of what it calls the problem. They don't use the word sex addiction, they use the word compulsivity, but it's basically the same types of issues that clients are dealing with. After my postdoc, I moved to Los Angeles, and after a year of working with sex offenders on parole, I got a job at a traditional sex addiction clinic here in LA that very much used the Carnes model, a recovery model, a 12-step approach, an addiction model, a very classical sex addiction model. And so that's really where I got exposed and learned a lot, um, being the director at that clinic. Is that where you where you and I met and yes. hired me? Okay. Yes, yes. <laughs> and I also got supervision from you there as well. So that was really awesome. That's where I got to meet you. Yeah, so I spent quite a number of years in the sex addiction field. And that was a different, again, a different model than compulsive sexual behavior. So I had training in both different approaches on how to look at the same problem. One thing I noticed when I was at this sex addiction clinic was there were very few resources for partners. I started doing a support group on Saturdays for partners. Eventually, I started to realize that at that time, the only real treatment model was either no real model or 
codependency or co-sex addiction. In the group that I started, I started noticing trauma symptoms. And so I started doing some research, qualitative research on what do partners go through. And I started to really be overwhelmed with the amount of trauma symptoms, the amount of pain, the amount of psychological injury and emotional overwhelm. So that really caught my curiosity. And I presented that research at a sex addiction conference. And my curiosity was piqued because of the response. There was an overwhelming reaction, both pushback and support. And so that we're talking about in the mental health community, in, like in the in field, the sex addiction field specifically. Yeah. And so that caught my curiosity more. And then I started working with a therapist named Sylvia Jason, who had also been looking at trauma. And we started collaborating and doing workshops. And through those workshops, we both found that every time we presented the idea that partners go through trauma and that we need to slow down around just immediately looking at a partner as a co-sex addict or codependency, there was always a confirmation in the participants that it seemed to really resonate with them. And first we started doing it with partners, then we started doing the same workshop with men who were diagnosed with sex addiction. And then we started doing them for couples. And I think I ended up forming the Institute for Sexual Health where I could really apply the model with freedom. That's where eventually you and I started doing the workshops. And so it's been a journey of really early on being very open to listening to partners. I think being in the room with them actually sitting with human beings with these experiences over time without a filter or a lens of already a presumed diagnosis and just really being open to hearing what they had to say. And I think that was the real thing that allowed me to see more than codependency and start to view the partner as someone who's been traumatized. And so over the years, there's been more my own research really practicing and applying the model clinically for many years. So there's actually been a quite a number of years now of actually applying the model to couples, to people struggling with these issues and seeing the benefit of it. And which model now are you specifically talking about? The compulsive abusive sexual relational disorder model. And I know that's a mouthful and the model has actually changed before it was, I was calling it the sex addiction induced trauma model. I think as I've moved along, I've been really, it's been important to me to try to like spell out everything very clearly and clinically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I've ended up with a lot of like very long labels, and tedious, <laughs> <laughs> tedious. Background. Right. That can, that could definitely happen sometimes. It's hard to be clear sometimes to try and conceptualize this in a way that people can easily understand it can we are we end up with those long labels sometimes yeah and mine seem particularly long because i think i'm trying to spell out everything so carefully so that people really understand what the model's trying to say and it's not confusing so yeah and i i love this model for a long time i wasn't I wasn't really aware of it. And then I started sending some clients to your workshops, some of the men who were struggling with compulsive sexual behavior. And I was really interested because they kept referring to this iceberg diagram. And so I, that's when I invited you to come and talk to my staff. And really when you were here that day, it was so eye-opening 
it was so incredibly eye-opening for all of us. Everyone really related because of what they see with their own clients. I mean, it really made sense. So why don't you maybe explain a little bit about that model and how you, you know, why you created it and what, how does it change the treatment? Yeah. So probably the biggest thing, because the model is actually like you brought up the iceberg diagram. That's just a simple diagram, a way to organize the model. And it can get pretty complex um, in terms of there's underlying factors and then there's the actual problem. And so there's maybe we can go into that more in a different podcast or, or context. But probably I think the main thing that I would want people to start to understand about the model is, and I'll try to simplify it because I think it's so important, is you have a problem with two parts usually. Not always, but usually, okay? So let's just say it was a more medical, physical, medical type issue. And someone said, you have a toxin in your blood and you also have a brain tumor. That's your diagnosis, okay? There's two pretty serious problems going on. We would think medically or clinically that both things need some form of treatment, assessment, treatment. We would want to monitor both things and see how they're doing and give feedback appropriately. And we would measure how well treatment's doing or not, or what's the status of treatment based on those two issues, you know? So fundamentally, that's kind of a metaphor. And you're saying they're both equally as important. Yes, yes. And maybe they're related, maybe they're not. Sometimes maybe they're more related. Let's just say those two things, the brain tumor and the 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 blood disorder. But so in these, when I'm looking at these issues and how they typically present in clinically, it is true that often the client will present with some kind of sexual problem, sexual acting out, something's problematic about that behavior. It's not that the behavior in itself Mm -hmm. is always problematic. So masturbation is not problematic compulsive masturbation or someone who can't control masturbation and is experiencing significant distress and negative impairment to functioning and things like that, then that's when it becomes a clinical issue. So there's some kind of sexual issue, sexual problem, often related to a lack of control. So whether we call that compulsivity or sex addiction, or whether we just call it problematic sexual behavior. Mm -hmm. So that's one part, part one. And maybe that's the brain tumor, you know, in our analogy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Then you have the other part of the problem, which is there's this serious integrity disorder, you know, and we all have challenges with integrity. Society has challenges with integrity. So I just want to bring light to integrity as an issue and how there can be varying degrees and varying ways that people struggle with integrity. And integrity is a fundamental concept of health, of relational health, of psychological stability. So when someone has such a significant level or type of integrity disorder, that's causing so much harm and that harm can actually be clinically diagnosed as forms of psychological abuse, emotional abuse, relational abuse. And there's all these patterns. So for example, having a secret sexual life while pretending 
not to while you're engaged with people who really depend on you psychologically and emotionally and relationally. So being in a family system and then having a secret sexual life and acting out and then showering and coming home for dinner and sitting down at dinner and pretending like that doesn't exist. Like there's all sorts of abuse in just the creation and the maintenance of a secret sexual life. And then there's all sorts of other patterns that go along with maintaining that such as lying or gaslighting or lying by omission or psychological manipulation or blaming the partner or blaming the relationship or once discovered not accepting responsibility or deflecting or minimizing or rationalizing or still gaslighting and still lying. Like there's so many patterns of abuse that are legitimate patterns of abuse that are diagnosable, psychological abuse. And that should be named and we should be very clear about that. That's the part that's been missing. And that would be, you know, in our analogy, like the blood, the toxin in the blood, right? Mm -hmm. And so in the traditional model, what's happened is all the energy's gone to the sexual part. Right. All the focus and all the preoccupation happens on... What do we call the sexual part? Is it really an addiction? And no, it's compulsivity. And no, it's just judgmental sexual attitudes. And there's all this debate, which is really important because all that needs to be sorted out. There's all this debate about the sexual part and all of our energy goes into the sexual behavior part. And so the diagnosis has really come, of sex addiction has really come to mean out of control sexual behavior, compulsive sexual behavior, sexual behavior that's causing negative consequences. That's the whole concept of sex addiction is there's a single concept. It's not a two-part problem traditionally. And, you know, I was going to add, I think when you say that it's, it, you can tell like it's, it was there the whole time, but by you being able to give it a name, I can see how partners can really feel validated because it's there, but it's it's sometimes hard to name name it if you don't know what you're looking at, if that makes sense. And giving it that structure seems to really help partners. And I can see why they have such a, a strong reaction to it, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I, I was actually going to say one thing too, which is what you just said really puts into um, context why so many Addicts, when they get sober and they have a period of sobriety from the sexual acting out, they have a very hard time understanding why their partner is still traumatized and isn't moving on. And if they're in treatment and not getting information about the partner trauma, then they're not able to understand what those incredible patterns of abuse were doing to their partner because it's not named, right? And it's, it's, it's underneath. So yeah. I, I think it's so, that's why this is so important to talk yeah. about. Yeah, I mean, I think you both are bringing up really important points, which is that it is very much like a gigantic elephant in the room and a completely unseen, unnamed, unrecognized elephant in the room. Like, absolutely hands down, that's how my experience has been. Um, And yes, naming it is going to immediately 
validate the victim because the victims experience these patterns of lies, deception, gaslighting, blaming, sometimes for years and years and years and years, right? So to have a name and to have somebody, especially a clinician, say, these are all patterns of abuse and you've been a victim of abuse in this way, potentially, for this many years is finally a huge step forward in addressing the problem because now there's light on it. You have a name for it. There's awareness. There's a consciousness. Light bulb has been turned on. And it also um, it also puts into context and makes it understandable why some partners end up being able to get past the sexual behavior and the sexual acting out. And in the end, it really is the, that chronic pattern of abuse that they struggle the most with and sometimes can't get past. Yeah, I think it would be fair to say in my experience, which is substantial with partners, I think it would be accurate to say that there's probably more partners over the years that have said, if I had to pick the one part or the other, the patterns of abuse have been much more damaging and have hurt me more and hurt my life and hurt my family and hurt my kids more than the sexual behavior itself. That's, that's my experience as well. Same here. I have the same experience. And sometimes the behavior itself, they, they don't always focus on that much. But these, these abusive patterns, the gaslighting, all of that, it's, it's devastating. Well, that's the part that's also so personal. You know, it's an attack on the person. And often, I mean, you and I have talked about this. I've talked with both of you about this on different occasions. But when a partner has been gaslighted and lied to and deceived for so many years, they doubt their own intuition. So if they thought that that their husband was cheating on them and they you know, confronted them on numerous occasions and he said, how could you even suggest something like that? I'm working so hard. That's why I'm not around. And, you know, you must be crazy. And how could you accuse me? And then later they find out that it was in fact true. Their intuition was right on. Um, that's incredible abuse because for all those years, they didn't trust themselves, right? They, they learned to think that something was wrong with them. Yes. And that's just one of the many symptoms of abuse is, you know, there's more I could say on that because, you know, in some of what I've come to understand is our gut system, our enteric system is actually in neuropsychological terms called the second brain. It's responsible for detecting threats in the environment. It's really important to have a healthy second brain. And so the second brain is, is exactly what's damaged with gaslighting. You're literally eroding and compromising and taking away from somebody their ability to properly use their second brain to function and make decisions and survive. And I was so, just going to say you're describing the second brain sounds exactly like a survival system. Yes. And so even long before discovery, you can have huge amounts of damage to a partner's second brain and her her second brain can already be pretty much destroyed by the time discovery comes so that's just one one example of hundreds of types of uh, forms of harm and trauma and abuse and not only does it validate the victim as that's a very important part of the victim's healing is to at least have that light bulb turn on and be like this is what 
potentially may have happened to me and to start to understand, even like we were just talking, oh, this happened to my second brain because of years of being gaslit. Like that's helpful to know. Can you give some, you know, when we talk about the second brain, for someone out there who maybe doesn't have a lot of the the training that we have, what might that look like in a, in a practical way of this damage of, of the second brain? Um, so, you know, real easy example might be a partner gets up to get some water and notices her husband's not in bed and comes around the corner and says, what are you doing? And he's like, oh, nothing. I'm just doing some research. And really he's looking at porn and maybe she's not even aware, but somewhere in her second brain, the question came out of the second brain already being suspicious or detecting something was off. And maybe her second brain registers, uh, there was some incongruence between what my second brain was feeling and the answer I just got. So this would be where it slowly eroded that ability to have that discernment from the constant abuse, to be able to have that discernment about that situation. Yeah, so being gaslit puts the victim immediately in a position, a forced position to either trust their gut or trust the perpetrator's definition of reality. You know, and, and there needs to be a, the, the victims being forced to either say, I trust my gut on this. And then that actually starts to erode the trust in the relationship and with their partner, or if they choose to trust their partner and what he's saying, or she's saying, then they're by default choosing to ignore or somewhat discount what their gut's saying. So every single time there needs to be, you're putting the partner in a choice of, do I erode my gut or do I erode my trust in the relationship? Something's going to have to erode here because you are being put in the position of two incongruent realities you know you have the reality that's being expressed to you through your partner and you have the reality that your second brain is trying to express and this this is a perfect example of why partners can't walk away from this without being wounded right i mean because like you said their relationships either going to get wounded or their with their partner or their relationship with themselves and often it's with both you know yes. in the end you know i was just sitting with a client the other night who chose to leave her husband, but it's been probably about four years and she hasn't gotten a divorce. And when we talked about the divorce and sort of what's holding her back, she became incredibly emotional. And the topic of what happened to her is still so incredibly intense. And the the greatest thing that came out of that conversation or the most, I guess, enlightening thing for me in terms of what was going on for her is she still doesn't trust herself. Because when I, she went back to talking about what he had done to her. And when I talked to her about this having nothing to do with her, which we've spoken about, you know, countless times over the year, she got tears in her eyes and she said, but I picked him. I picked him. So that disconnect from herself, from being able to trust herself and being afraid that in the future, she's going to still have that same problem, Mm -hmm. right? Which just goes to show also how much partners need support and help and healing, not just in the context of their relationship, but if they choose to leave, they're going to still have those wounds. Yes, absolutely. Which is just, it's awful to hear that. 
So to sum up, uh, to answer your question, there's two parts of the problem, and that's really what the model is saying. You know, there's the sexual part, there's the patterns of abuse and integrity issue. Both parts are really important. Both parts need a formal, proper clinical diagnosis. Both parts need proper treatment and monitoring of how these two things are going. Are they getting better? Are they improving? Are they not? What's getting in the way? Let's help this person identify what's getting in the way so that they can maybe make more improvements on both tracks. Obviously, if somebody's not in a relationship, they might not have that abuse track. It might still be helpful to know about Mm -hmm. and the potential for when they get in a relationship that these are things you want to really be aware of. There's also people with abuse integrity disorders where that's the primary disorder and the sexual acting out is one offshoot of a more primary psychology that is abusive and lacks integrity across the board in many different areas. And I think a lot of professionals, unfortunately, fail to to see that, what you just said. Yes. um, It's the assumption is all of this lying and abuse comes from the sexual problem. And that's not always the case. So we have to also nuance our thinking, which one's primary, are they equal? And it is true that for some people, the compulsivity or sexual addiction problem is primary and the patterns of abuse and integrity issues are secondary that stem from hiding and covering up this secret sexual life. But there are also people who the lack of integrity and the integrity disorder and the patterns of abuse and manipulation in relationships can be all over the place. And in some cases that could be considered primary with the sexual acting out being one piece of this primary integrity and abuse psychology. The other really important piece is it's not just for the partner that it's helpful. It's really helpful for the person with the problem. Mm-hmm. You know, we do no favor in ignoring the abuse in the abuser. Is right? that the reason I mean, that you've created the, the workshop or the intensives that you do specifically with the, you know, the abusers? Is that why? Or is that the reason that those people call you for help? Because I'm well, curious. Usually they call because of, they appreciate both aspects of the model because they feel like, yes, I really want to deal with this sexual acting out, but I also really need to deal with how I got myself in a place where I literally have been lying and gaslighting and manipulating and pretending and even with kids and a family and I have this whole secret life and I'm you know, interacting with my wife and hiding it. And like, what is all of that? You know, so people really appreciate like this treatment model helps you with both of those things. Yeah. I've seen it really to help clients. I mean, if they embrace this model, the addict really does some deep empathetic healing for himself, but also for his partner. And when they do this, seeing them come out on the other side is, is, is really amazing. I mean, they, they do a lot of repair, but they have um, an incredibly healthy relationship that's meaningful. 
Yeah, I mean, we all have shadow aspects to ourselves. We know that in, in psychological terms, <laughs> we all have things we need to own that are painful. And the job of, I, I think, treatment is to facilitate that delicate, painful sometimes process of integrating our shadow into our sense of self. And there's so much healing and reconciliation and strength and integrity and wholeness that comes from that process within an individual and within a relationship. And so to push that down and ignore that and to then turn around and say, we're ignoring this because we think that's the most therapeutic thing to do. Have you seen? It's really bizarre to me. Like, I think you're, you're doing a disservice by just treating the sexual part, especially if you're aware of there's this other piece of the work potentially, and you're choosing to just completely ignore that and prevent your client or patient from even the exposure to a huge part of what's residing in them as a painful reality. Right? So so why do you think that a professional therapist would do that? I think that's a very good question and something I've, I think about a lot. I would say, first of all, we're not trained as clinicians very well in abuse. I'm really thankful that I have really solid training in sex offender work. Part of working with perpetrators of any kind is using appropriate language, not mincing words, being clear with definitions. In a sex offender group, for example, it might not be uncommon to have each person check in about their sex offense and even saying like, my name is so-and-so and I'm a sex offender and really learning to take ownership over time and destigmatize and integrate. So this training is lacking. So any clinician outside of really specific work and training around perpetration and abuse, like most clinicians are, they have some, you know, touching base and some general education, but actual really clinically working with abusers and even just the idea of using the word abuse appropriately as an important clinical method is not very well known. So a lot of clinicians have said, you're demonizing the sex addicts, you're shaming them, they can't handle shame, you're going to make them act out by using the word abuse. And that just seems so foreign to me as a clinician trained in working with any type of perpetration or abuse. That's like clinical work 101 is what does the word abuse mean? And what does the word victim mean? And if it's appropriate, what would be the advantages or disadvantages of using that? And like, there's a whole training there that's not really part of the sex addiction world because by definition, sex addiction hasn't been identified as an abuse problem, which is why there isn't training on abuse. So it starts- Well, it has been identified. Yeah. That's exactly the work that you're doing. Right, right. <laughs> But in traditional model, everyone's looking at it as a sexual problem where there's a lack of control, there's negative consequences, and we need to help the person gain control or somehow stop. And that's as far as it's really been developed. And I think also, I mean, I would add that I think that 
some of these these types of abuse are very, very subtle, and you have to have a trained eye to be able to spot them. They can go unseen pretty easy. And in some ways, sometimes the addict doesn't even realize, doesn't even know that what they just did in that moment is abusive. And so I think a lot of therapists can can miss it. It just doesn't get seen because it's it's subtle. And that's why I think our workshops are so powerful because within the context of learning about the abuse, oftentimes the person who has done the abuse is able to see it, whereas they didn't see it before and it wasn't pointed out before. And then they have that aha moment. And then they're really desperate for more information. Oh my God, how do I help her heal from this? Right? How do I do this differently? Yes, I think my patients who are the abusers very much value the model and value the work. And if presented in the right way, are very capable of recognizing the abuse, taking appropriate and legitimate ownership and using that to their benefit. So I think it's patronizing to assume that these people are incapable of that for some reason. They can't handle it. Right. I remember. I think it's diminishing to men. I think it's uh, not believing that men can be non-abusive is part of it. I think this type of abuse is a very common type of abuse that men have perpetrated towards their wives for so long that it's become normalized, that the idea of cheating or having a secret sexual life as domestic abuse is a head, head scratcher. Still, for most people, I, I I really appreciate you saying that, Omar. I think that is is so true. And what I found with uh, you know when I when I work with men and they get this information, it actually there might be some kind of shame at first, but it does become empowering to them, and they actually go, "Wow, I, I yeah," and I don't want to do that, and they actually want to change. How can they fix it? Yeah, because in some ways they they very much value the people they're hurting. They love the people they're hurting in some ways and they don't know what they're doing is abuse. So I like that you said. Yeah, in fact, they've been taught that cheating is makes you more of a man and it makes you a stud and it's cool and it's what guys do and people say it's normal and biological and so the idea that cheating is domestic abuse is not clear is not something they grow up with in fact they grow up with the opposite of normalizing it and having being given props for doing it so it's a very serious masculinity issue as as much as anything else which is part of my model, which is one of those underlying factors in that iceberg model. That's one of the most powerful parts of that model. I do hope that we can talk about that again at another point because it's it's really eye-opening. I want to go back to something you said a little while ago, which is you were talking about how sometimes the clients have seen other treatment professionals and that second component, the, the abusive part, has been ignored right? And so I imagine what you've seen is a relationship that's continued to be traumatized. So I'm wondering what happens when you get those clients in your office, how they feel about the experience that they'd had and how you help them. And um, I'm specifically referring to treatment-induced trauma. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the, the main things, the first things, I guess, that happens is 
when clients or patients are introduced to the model, there is a huge validation and a, and a light bulb thing like, oh, there's two parts to this and that makes sense and that's logical. But then it can also bring up certain wounds around having not seen it and what are the implications for not having it named, not having it recognized. For how long has that been endured? In what context has that been endured? Has that even happened in treatment when they were crying out for help and there was so much hemorrhaging and still nobody turned the light bulb on the abuse part and none of that was being named and in fact was the partner being blamed was the relationship being blamed was the abuser trying his best and having success with sexual sobriety and still both these people in the relationship hemorrhaging away, you know? So I think that a lot of emotions come up when that light bulb goes on just around the implications of what it has meant to that person to have the light bulb, to have their pain so in the dark and so disenfranchised and so not even legitimized enough to have light on it yet. And I think Unfortunately, there's still a lot of therapies and people who are experiencing this where they're sitting with this type of trauma. It's not being named. The huge elephant is there. Omar, I wanted to actually ask you um, to that point, how do other professionals respond to this model other than me and Dwayne? Because yeah. we're obviously, obviously big proponents. You know, there's, I think, the same range of reactions huge amount of support and applause and a huge amount of pushback and demonization. I think there's a, a, a lengthy conversation about the ins and outs of why. Mm -hmm. However, I will say that if you're trying to address something as deep as a type of abuse that's been so normalized for so long, and you're pushing up against that and trying to get people to see this type of abuse clearly. And like, if we're saying having a secret sexual life and cheating on your family or in a relationship is a form of domestic abuse, then there's a lot of domestic abuse. There's right? a lot and of domestic so abuse. To turn that light bulb on in society is to have all these people confront something that's so painful, both victims and perpetrators. And so it would be, a, it's a very uphill battle, you know. It would be like to, an epidemic. It, it is an epidemic that's being unseen. And so the forces are really great at trying to keep it in the dark. You know, because ultimately, even if we're just talking about, like we were earlier, masculinity, if men are really forced to own cheating as domestic abuse, like that's like a whole societal shift, you know? And often we're still in the psychology of, well, it takes two to tango. It must be the relationship must have had some part of that. The word abuse is never used. It's, I remember we're when still you far away from really having that, you know, clear. I think I do want to say that I think we've made some progress 
because I remember when you and I were, were facilitating the workshop together at ISH years ago, I do remember that there were therapists, other therapists that were hesitant to refer their clients because of the languaging. And then they'd heard about that from other, other clients that might've really been having a major shame spiral as a result of that. And they didn't want to send the clients. And I do think it's shifting a little bit. I think that people now are seeing more how important that is to, to acknowledge and name and look at the languaging and all of that. Yeah, I think so as well. I think it is changing slowly. A long way to go. (laughs) A long way to go. Yeah. I think it also, thankfully it makes scientific and clinical sense because if you're starting to look at the trauma and what the victim goes through. And the more you study that, the more you're going to have to acknowledge the abuse and the patterns of abuse, because that's where, that's the source. That's one of the, that's the thing that's causing the trauma, right? So you can't have one without the other. So eventually as the field progresses and more and more people really study partner trauma, then it'll just naturally organically go into understanding these patterns of abuse. So, cause they go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other right now. It's a little disjointed because the field is, there's some people who are getting the partner trauma piece. They don't have the abuse piece yet. And that's just, I think a, a matter of evolution after spend some time in that trauma place, they'll start to appreciate like, oh, then, yeah, the the abuse is part of what's causing this. And so I have to understand that as a function of understanding the trauma. Yeah. You know, Omra, I want to thank you so much for coming on and talking about all of this. I mean, I think it's so important, the work that we're we're doing that you're doing to 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 get that word out there, and I just really appreciate you coming on to the Helping Couples Heal podcast and and talking about your experience and wisdom. I think it's great. I really could talk to you all day about this. Um, I have so many more questions, and but I know that we don't have more time. So yeah, like Dwayne said, thank you for coming, and maybe we can have you come back again. Thank you. Yeah, I think that would be great. I think we could we could definitely find a way to make that happen. Dwayne, um, we're going to be able to have Omar's um, iceberg diagram on the website. Is that right? It, yes. Thank you so much, Omar, for letting us do that. Yeah, you'll be able to download that at helpingcouplesheal.com. It'll be uh, probably on the resources page or the show notes page, but it'll be there. Okay, great. Well, thank you again for being here. You're welcome. Oh, and, and if people want to find you, how do they do that? They can go to the instituteforsexualhealth.com. Yeah. Okay, All right. Thank you, Omar. All right. Take care. See you next time. Thank you for listening to the Helping Couples Heal podcast, where your healing is the number one priority. If you'd like additional resources about betrayal trauma or to learn more about the workshop, please visit helpingcouplesheal.com. If you are finding the podcast helpful, please support Marnie and Duane in continuing to reach others impacted by betrayal trauma by leaving a review on iTunes and sharing this podcast with someone you care about. Once again, thank you for listening. We're grateful for your trust and look forward to continuing to support you on your journey of healing.